Brian, welcome back. Good seeing you. So we had our first episode of AI Meets Live Psycho live three weeks ago. Um, I have been so incredibly humbled and validated by the reactions we've been receiving. We have had over 2,000 plays. We have hundreds of views on YouTube of our first episode. Um, definitely went far beyond my own expectation and most hopeful expectation. How do you think it went? Well, I think it's only upward from here, but I think the cool thing that I'm noticing is that there's a real need for a podcast to talk about the seemingly simple concept of AI and life sciences, but there are some out there, but there's not really all that much programming on the topic. And I think there could be a lot more, there could be a lot more practical information on it from experts. So that's what we hope to, to gather. Very well said. Uh, so what's been new with you in the world of AI? Are you doing anything interesting? I think I'm more in listening mode. I'm talking to a lot of companies, a lot of big tech companies, a lot of like smaller companies, mid-sized companies, and hearing about what they're doing. So I'm hearing a lot of cool things about AI in the cloud, like quantum computing, kind of like quantum inspired computing. So I'm hearing a lot of interesting things about AI from different vantage points from people in the field, especially in drug discovery. So it's been cool just hearing about what's coming kind of along the pike, coming along down the pike. Well, I've really appreciated you sharing me, sharing with me um, some of the highlights of what you've been learning. So I have not been exposed to quantum inspired computing until you brought it to my attention, but it is beyond inspiring. And I say that in quotes lightly, but uh, it really is so interesting. Uh, that's more kind of theoretical. So what I've actually been doing is enjoying training my own uh, GPT. So here we have this uh, wonderful series, AI Meets LifeSci, but Device Talks also has seven other podcasts. So I trained my GPT to help me create the show notes. Mm -hmm. So it's pulling together the summary and the title. And every time I do it, I kind of train it even more and more and more on best practices. And then uh, the kind of the unique voice for each of the uh, the different types of podcasts that we've had. And it has been hugely successful. Definitely far superior than what I've been doing before, which I used to take the transcript and then I would feed it into uh, ChatGPT uh, through like a ChatGPT splitter. Uh, mm -hmm. But now I've been able to upload the transcript and then it already remembers the uh, specifications that mm -hmm. I have, like the number of characters and um, you know, keywords that I want to include. But it's really sped up like, my own uh, operational side of getting these podcasts out. So that's been pretty transformative, actually. Really exciting. Improving workflows. Just another example of how artificial intelligence is improving our workflows. So we have more time to make amazing content like AI meets life size. So with that, let us take a moment and talk about today's episode. So we are on episode two of AI meets life Sci, and we're featuring Elena Bonfiglioli, the uh, global business leader for health and life sciences at Microsoft Azure. Uh, the interview itself was fantastic. I mean, Elena is just a terrific speaker, but what really has struck me is how the Microsoft Azure's kind of breadth and depth and reach goes beyond even my own understanding. So all of the different uh, entities within the life sciences. And one of the big things that Elena talks about, Brian, and I think that you were particularly interested in this as well, is all of the partnerships and mm. how important these partnerships are for collaborating for um, you know, the, the future innovations and um, really moving health forward. I think it's maybe not new now, but there's so many high level collaborations now with companies like Novartis, Novo Nordisk in the pharma space, UCB, academic partners that some of these big cloud companies have that it's, it's becoming increasingly impressive just how much is happening in the cloud. And we're seeing more and more kind of like advanced AI, um, GPU, like TPU calculations in the cloud, potentially quantum coming down the pike in the future. So I think that's a cool angle to keep an eye on of cloud-based horsepower increasing steadily. 
couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, so before we jump into Elena's uh, interview, I just have to do my thank you for listening to AI Meets Life Sci. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to AI Meets Life Sci on any major podcast network. So Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're also on YouTube. You can find us at Device Talks. Uh, so please make sure to subscribe. And huge thanks to our sponsors, Catalyze Healthcare and Smart Track Business Intelligence. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, so enough about us, Brian. Let's hear from Elena Bonfiglioli of Microsoft Azure. Welcome to AI Meets Life Sci, where we explore the transformative impact of artificial intelligence on the life sciences. Like the start of the dot-com revolution when user-friendly browsers like Netscape opened the door to widespread adoption, generative AI technologies like ChatGPT have helped democratize AI making it accessible to hundreds of millions and completely changing the way we interact with AI and machine learning. In each episode, we'll sit down with medtech, biopharma, and tech companies driving the integration of life sciences and AI. We'll focus on breakthroughs and what's on the horizon, but also guide you past the hype. Join us as we explore and clarify the frontier of AI meets life sci. Welcome, Elena. We are on our second episode of AI Meets Life Sci, a collaboration between Device Talks and Pharma Drug and Discovery with Willing to Work Harder Media. And we really appreciate your time with us today. And we're gonna dig into AI machine learning and how it affects life sciences and how we can, working together, move health forward. So really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, we always like to start at the 40,000 foot level. So that being said, Elena, how did your interest in AI develop? Was it before or during your time at Microsoft? Well, nice to meet you all. And it's a great question. Actually, my passion for AI started a long time back um, in probably in the first wave of AI flashback 30 years. Um, and uh, since then, technology evolved a lot. And with technology maturing, my passion actually intensified up to this point, which is a pivotal moment in, in AI. But uh, just flashback, I started programming, doing welfare policy simulations. It was called programming back then in SPSS, very powerful statistical uh, platform to extract actionable insights from data. So back then we're talking about the same things, but because you asked me to reflect back, maybe two things changed. I discovered already uh, at that time, the power of uh, interfaces. The fact that in SPSS, I mean, all things given, it was quite easy to program. And so for people that were not even specialists, I could learn and, and get to do my policy uh, simulations in a very, you know, kind of natural way. And today, this is exactly what as has, has been driving big adoption in, in ChatGPT. And then um, the other thing is that back then I realized how many precious insights were hidden into data to really do beneficial interventions at population level. I know Brian and I would have to second that completely. <laughs> Data's like, we're like kids in candy stores when we <laughs> are looking at data. <laughs> Given the importance of data for AI, I was, was curious about how you view AI, which is such an umbrella term. I, I've heard different people using the term a bit differently. So sometimes as a journalist, I have a little bit of a challenge understanding what a given person means. was curious, how, how do you define AI and what significance does it hold for you? Yes, thank you. And it's not one technology. It's really the ability to reason over a large amount of data with privacy preserving and to convert that data into intelligence, right? Intelligence that can be used to improve outcomes for customers, whoever your customers are, and for society and for benefits in the economy. For, for us in healthcare, really, it could be for, for patients ultimately, but also for clinicians, for researchers, and we can discuss that. But it's a collection of technologies, right, that are applied to very specific 
scenarios in the workflow into a business application. So let's not think that AI is something else. AI comes to power a workflow, ideally as close as in the flow to where the user already is working. And it's only if that is true that we can be really uh, aligned to that mission of empowering people and organizations to achieve more. And you may have heard our CEO mention that healthcare is one of the most urgent areas of application of artificial intelligence. So here we are. Well, I mean, you make a really great point, point Elena, if you don't mind taking so, so how, how does then Microsoft ensure that the workflow uh, remains or the um, workforce rather, and the workflow within the workforce uh, remains updated and uh, you're constantly evolving. So what's the approach? Yes. So um, think maybe if you take uh, the challenges that are most pressing in healthcare, think about reducing clinician workload and document um, documentation burden. If you think about 53% of physicians in 2023 compared to 42% in 2018, uh, according to the Medscape uh, uh, survey, are suffering with burnout. Now, take that workflow and augment it with AI capabilities so that you reduce the time that is spent in that clinical documentation. You increase the quality, you reduce the possibility of mistakes. To address these type of unmet needs, we have actually very recently announced the general availability of a DAX co-pilot, Dragon Ambient Experience. Um, formerly, it was known as Dax Express. But to, to really look at that workflow, imagine a clinician that does 4,000 clicks a day, uncompensated time. Imagine 16 minutes per patient in active time charts, in reviewing of ordering exams, and so on. Two hours of documentation per one hour spent with patients. So when you think about all of that and you bring the co-pilot into that workflow, you liberate productivity and you allow clinicians to really have clinical um, summaries that are automated, that are securely stored in, and, and produced in seconds. They remain on control. They remain in control. Human remains in the loop. But um, they are immediately structured. They can be reviewed and they can be integrated in the electronic health record. And that is where we also launched our collaboration with Epic. So that's a great example of AI in a workflow. I had a follow-up question about data. We, we kicked off the call talking about data. And it seems like on the one hand, there's a ton of unused or untapped data sources in healthcare. I think I heard somewhere that roughly 80% of healthcare data is unstructured. So that's one barrier. But And also hear about the, the vast potential of using a whole range of different sources for drug discovery, for medical device development, for clinical care. I'm curious about your potential, or sorry, your, um, your take on how to tap these vast troves of unreserved data and also complying with privacy and other like maybe um, competitive considerations when dealing with data for AI? I am very glad that you asked this question. Um, data, 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 and data interoperability and data beyond silos. That is the challenge, is it um, in healthcare providers, payers, in pharma, life sciences, it's in every industry, but if you think that here data have the power to help save lives, definitely there is no better incentive than unlocking 
those 97% of, of data that are actually um, not used fully today. So let me say two things. First of all, the last two decades, three decades, have been about digitizing everything. So the, the issue is not, is data in a digital form? But can we query that data and can we query it in a way that is um, comprehensive from a data strategy standpoint, that is interoperable in the posture of the solutions that we use? And so the challenge is twofold. First of all, for an organization is to have that um, data strategy and data interoperability inside the DNA of how they think about innovation and data-driven discovery and data-driven insights and so on. On the provider of uh, solutions, um, I think it's imperative that we shift to have platforms that are fully interoperable and multi-modality of data management. So we announced our Fabric Health Data Manager solution two weeks ago. And that builds on the idea that we need to meet the customers where the customers are almost in, with the analytics capability that is, I would say, agnostic of the cloud engine that is being used. We know that organizations um, in healthcare, but also in pharma, um, have a, a, a variety of data estates in different degrees of maturity, some in the cloud, some on-prem, some on private cloud, and so on. Now imagine the ability to combine data that are previously uh, being digitized but kept in silos, electronic health records, uh, packs, um, imagine med devices, imagine all the data that span the social determinants of health, while well, we need a solution that brings structured and unstructured imaging and all type of data with open data standards. Open data standards, you know, FHIR, DICOM, MedTech services data and so on, and provides a common analytics infrastructure and architecture. And that is what I believe is at the core of precision health discovery and precision health delivery. Precision means data. That's, that's, that's the equation that we need to solve. And so I believe that even when you think about pharma, pharma needs a multi-modality data capability as the foundation of understanding diseases, of running effective R&D and then going through manufacturing supply chain up to commercial post-launch. What do you here, think? Here, <laughs> so I think that you had mentioned um, kind of how Microsoft is taking the first step toward that, Elida. What's the next step? What could the life sciences industry sort of at large do collectively to move forward for this sort of um, more universal approach? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, recognizing that um, multimodality is at the heart of R&D as, as one element, right? Taking the idea that computation is an equal partner to scientific discovery. That's the second step. And, and I reaffirm that, right? Computation is not something else is integral to how you develop drugs, how you augment um, the understanding of diseases, to then also design clinical trials and really to have computational as a co-pilot in the R&D space. That is a, a mental shift, right? And we start to see evidence of that, but we also start to see that um, that's probably the only way forward when you think about um, R&D uh, productivity being at the lowest in its decade um, and, and 
we need ways to bring drugs to market faster. We need ways to shorten the time of those clinical uh, trials. And we need ways to shift to sightless trials and to design trials for precision medicine. So when you put it all together, I think data is at the heart. Multimodality is at the heart and computational as a partner as the mind shift that we want to get to. On a, a similar note to the multimodal angle, I, I've seen that multimodal is becoming more of a a function or a, an option for a lot of the gen AI, which is a big trend for the past year. And was curious where you see the potential for large language models and other types of generative AI and life sciences. It seems like I'm hearing a lot about R&D potential, obviously across the board, but was curious about your take on that. Yes, um, and and I I want to be um, sharing with you that I'm realistic about it. Yes, there is um, really a lot of enthusiasm because when when we engage with customers, when I work with customers across health and life sciences across the globe, and we do an ideation on Gen AI, we come out with 100, 150 possible application cases. And then you have to prioritize. So there is a time for everything, but definitely there are some cases um, whose time is now. Give you an example, which is something that we all spend a lot of time doing, which is basically searching for information. Right. So uh, typically you, you have a question and, and you search until you found somehow an answer. And we know that for for researchers, the time is, is, is money, but also it, it's an opportunity to really bring drugs to discovery much faster. So we have worked with uh, um, a pharma life science organization to really do a combination of their own platform with our um, Azure OpenAI services to make it possible for researchers to access the information many, many times faster, but with one difference, with context. And you will, um, you will appreciate. Imagine that I'm searching for um, HCP. You know, I mean, in pharma, that stands for um, healthcare providers or healthcare professional. But it could also, in one document, in another document, uh, maybe from research, it could also stand for host cell protein. Right. So if you take a document in commercial that HCP has one meaning in research as another. So how do I do a search that is context aware? Well, that's a great example of how you bring knowledge search and Gen AI enabled capabilities to the fingertips of everyone. So context matters and you can really empower people to do what they do best, um, leveraging a platform capability that has, um, I would say, principles and tenants that go from scalability, reusability, resilience, very strong governance, AI governance, data security, access control, and so on. So when you bring that together, you start changing the DNA of an organization and now things are done without having to go into the most difficult point solution. And that is important too, but you want to diffuse AI and change the DNA of an organization with AI today. And by the way, there is, I, I can follow up with, uh, with names of the customers. The story I just told you is, is out there. It's a public story. Um, and it's a fantastic example of how we save time and we bring knowledge to the user that needs it to do what they do best, which is scientific discovery. I mean, you led in beautifully to how important partnerships are. Can you elaborate more about that? I mean, you, you were talking about this sort of, um, yes. you know, shifting of the mindset and um, changing the DNA of an organization, which is 
very astute points. So how important are these partnerships? And are you looking at these partnerships in just your lane? Or are you looking at maybe more surprising uh, potential partnerships to move that goal forward? Yes. So at Microsoft, we believe that partnerships is core to how we bring innovation to market, first and foremost, right? Even if you think about how we think about going to market is with the ecosystem of partners from a platform perspective, you know, they are almost like the line of business, last mile innovators or the integrators of capabilities on top of our platform. So we have a strong DNA of partner and partnerships. Now, if you have seen some of our um, announcements in the pharma space, uh, um, was it with, with Novartis, with whom I work very closely, with UCB, with Novo, um, with others, right? The first thing is to be very clear on the unmet need. That is a gold recipe. And as our CEO always says is, what is it that Microsoft and Organization X, with whom we are partnering, would be uniquely doing that we can uniquely address and solve for the world, leaving the world in a better place, fulfilling that mission of empowerment? So when you think that, you, you start narrowing down very clearly, not of, oh, well, what can we do? Is what we absolutely must do. And that is really what has been um, at the core of how we've been thinking about bringing, for example, um, generative chemistry capabilities uh, um, to, to, to Novartis or to UCB and others, to really empower researchers with scientific discovery in an accelerated fashion, bringing the latest and the brightest AI capabilities, simulation, molecular simulations, modeling, and so on, what today also we call um, Azure quantum elements, to the researchers. And there is, in that frame of the partnership, there is also a view of digital maturity. Um, if you don't meet as partners into the mindset of how the organization needs to evolve, the partnership's objectives are not met. If we are true to the fact that we are empowering others, that means that we need to build capabilities. And when we come out eventually of that partnership, the organization remains fully empowered, right? Because if not, one would create dependencies. And we see a lot um, today, uh, if you look at the past decade, we see in pharma uh, the fact that not having certain digital capabilities for in silico development and so on, a lot of these um, uh, objectives have been subcontracted to startups and so on, which is a great way to incubate. But at some point, you need to bring these capabilities inside and build the next operating system for the organization. And this is pharma, but... If you take back my point on multimodal and you think about some of the um, partnership announcement that we've done recently with uh, uh, Northwestern Medicine, for example, or with Arthur Health or with uh, Singhealth and so on, how uh, we are integrating fabric um, to make sure that they can leverage the very best of the healthcare multimodal data solutions to do the clinical outcomes that they want to achieve, right? So it is always that unmet need is bringing the capabilities, meeting an organizational mindset and doing something extraordinary together. And then replicate also on behalf of the industry, because we don't want to empower one patient or one clinician, we want to empower you know, everyone to achieve more. Your enthusiasm is infectious. Okay, go ahead, Brian. <laughs> You mentioned digital maturity, which obviously is a really important theme. I'm also wondering about how Microsoft kind of stays ahead of the curve with AI, which is moving at such a rapid pace that many professionals in the, the field have trouble kind of keeping up. How does Microsoft kind of keep up with what's coming in six months or around the corner? 
Yes. So I think that we have a couple of unique um, things. First of all, our uh, strategic investments in AI, they're, they, they, they're not one-year-old, six-year-olds and so on. We've been, you know, investing in this uh, from a research cloud and AI uh, capability through, um, for example, to our engineering teams, but also to our Microsoft research centers. We have a network of nine centers where we have some of the um, leading excellence uh, in terms of researcher and, and data scientist and, and people that really are the leaders in AI. So that is a unique footprint. And when you take that, um, you also uh, apply it to healthcare. Um, we have Microsoft Health Futures is, is a team that sits in research that is really looking at what should we be um, thinking about in terms of responsible research, in terms of incubation, in terms of moonshots to drive that cross company um, strategy for the benefit of a healthier future. Um, the acquisition of Nuance has brought an incredible new power from meeting um, our platform capabilities with unique, unique um, clinical excellence and AI capacity in the workflow of doctors and in the workflow of radiologists. And then finally, um, I also think that um, there is a grassroots element to innovation. So our AI for philanthropic programs, for example, the fact that we stay very much tuned to the unmet needs of healthcare organizations, not-for-profit, um, who are tackling some of the toughest challenges in global health, bring back a feedback loop of innovation for which then we need to go and find solutions from an engineering standpoint or from a platform standpoint and so on and so forth. So um, I think we are, we are, we have it in our DNA, I must say. And um, when you have it in your DNA, you just don't do it. You, you are it. But I've, I've heard a lot about big pharma companies this year in particular, like ramping up pretty um, significant AI programs. Yes. I'm, I'm curious where you see things headed in the next year or so, given that there's more interest, there's more interest in clinical trials and drug discovery kind of yeah. across the board. Where do you see yeah. things kind of evolving in the, the coming months? Yes. The, I mean, you, you say it really right. The pace of change is, is almost so fast that uh, yesterday is a far gone past, right? And, and today is the future. So it, it's almost that intense. And um, uh, we, we stay at pace. So I see two areas of, of interest. First of all, the power of an image in understanding diseases is understanding the evolution of disease in um, shaping insights from clinical trials. So precision imaging in pharma as the ability of unlocking insights from medical images um, and infusing it in the R&D process as one that I see an expanding field. And for that, just um, uh, as we spoke about partnerships, I don't know if you have seen that we announced the collaboration with PageAI uh, to build the global largest image-based AI model to um, assist uh, pharma and healthcare in capturing the complexity of cancer and also in serving as, as a hub, as a cornerstone for the development of the next generation of clinical applications and computational biomarkers. So that is an expanding area. The second one would be um, really how we're able to scale real-world evidence with Gen AI capabilities. And I really believe that LLMs have that potential to unlock value in real world evidence um, ecosystem. Um, and that could be both in terms of identifying the right patients for trials, um, matching them to the right studies, but also in post-market surveillance, moving beyond um, controlled trials to real world settings. And then 
my one of my passion, um, I started off by saying that with um, DAX Copilot, for example, we were able to really transform the interaction between the doctor and the patient, right? Where um, ambient clinical intelligence, so what I'm saying um, in, in our dialogue, if you are my doctor, is captured with context and with consent and structured in a medical note that the doctor can review and then can be integrated in the system of record, the electronic medical um, record, the EHR. Now imagine if a doctor is getting used to this. Next time that a sales rep or a medical science liaison from pharma shows up in person, the, the experience has to be very different, right? So there is going to be a, a, a moving uh, goalpost of expectations from doctor on how they engage with pharma. And so um, thinking about GenAI as a transformational agent for the experience of engagements in pharma commercial, I think the time of that is now. This conversation has been thrilling and I'm only disappointed because it's too short. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Elena. Thank you for joining us on AI Meets Life Sci. We really appreciate your insights and enthusiasm. Yes. It was great. I appreciate your time. It was, it was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it was really great. Thank personal you. to personal. This was, ugh. Thank you for everything. I just, I'm so jazzed. <laughs> Thank well, you. You know, it's an honor to, to serve this, uh, this industry. You're here. And we're back. It's cool hearing about the potential of data in healthcare, which sounds like a truism that data is powerful. It's oftentimes hard to harness in healthcare. So it's, it's interesting hearing about how companies like Microsoft Azure are working to streamline the process of dealing with structured and unstructured data. I mean, absolutely. One of the things that Elena said that was striking is that uh, right now they're trying to unlock 97% of the unused data. So it's not necessarily about more data, but unlocking the potential of the existing data. And that's something I didn't really think about. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so important. So kind of speaking about data, and I think that you touched the beginning of this episode about uh, quantum-inspired computing. Uh, let's talk about our second interview with 1910 Genetics. Can you go into that for us? This is a company I just heard about, and like I kind of like saw the pitch, and I, I couldn't say no. So there's there's this kind of angle about the company is using automated multimodal AI um, technology and that they had the backing from OpenAI's CEO, Sam Altman, among like a Microsoft fund, like an M12 Microsoft Venture Fund, Playground Global, other investors. But this pitch about using like quantum and multimodal AI was compelling to me. And I'm, I'm curious to hear kind of like from a more startup perspective about what's happening in that space. Welcome to a new episode of AI Meets LifeSci. I'm excited today to speak to Jen Huanco. CEO of 1910 Genetics. I recently learned about the company and I, several things piqued my interest, like one of which was her background. She has a PhD. She has a, um, I don't know, a comprehensive background in um, pharmacology and also a background in AI. And then the company also has a backing of Microsoft and Sam Altman. So I guess the first place I'd like to start is your background. So originally from Nigeria and then immigrated to the U.S. and then first started at George Washington and then later Claflin. Can you kind of walk me through kind of your background um, in education and then kind of what led you to pursue biochemistry and genetics as an area of focus? Yeah, sure, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, I attended a small historically black college in South Carolina, um, Claflin University, studied biochemistry. Spent most of my summers uh, doing basic research uh, initially, um, as you mentioned, at GWU, studied fruit fly genetics, um, later on at Yale, studied biophysics, um, and then quickly um, started spending most of my summers in pharma. Uh, I was at Eli Lilly, uh, actually worked on um, the now approved GLP-1 drug, uh, Trilicity for type 2 diabetes. Um, and then spent a summer at Novartis in the oncology group. And I think 
a lot of these experiences were pretty formative in terms of um, solidifying my interest uh, in drug discovery. Um, I shortly after graduating from college, I pursued my PhD in pharmacology at Tufts University School of Medicine here in Boston uh, and at the Boston Children's Hospital of Harvard Medical School. Uh, primarily just was really interested in, I wasn't interested in any one particular disease area or in any one particular, you know, biology. You know, I, I think I was more so interested in just the fundamental discipline of like, how do you make drugs? Um, and that's what I wanted to study. And that's why I elected to study uh, pharmacology, actually really classical pharmacology um, or old school pharmacology, if you would. Um, and so I learned, you know, Goodman and Gilman, you know, everyone who's uh, studied pharmacology, you know, read the classic textbooks, you know, took a lot of the classic um, didactics and electives and just really just um, honed that skill set. Um, and I think along the way, you know, realized that a lot of, we certainly should be grateful for a lot of the medicines we have today. A lot of them came from very classical pharmacology principles, but um, it, it was pretty obvious that there were opportunities for us to be leveraging technology um, in, in, in a lot of the artisanal ways that we were doing drug discovery. Um, and that really was where I started to get curious initially just by reading, you know, um, reading up in advances, you know, initially in like data and analytics and then later on in like machine learning, AI and so on. And um, I actually spent about three years working at a startup company called Transparency Life Sciences. That was one of the very first companies to, um, you know, just try out this idea of leveraging digital health for a clinical trial. Uh, optimization and the two founders were really interesting. They really sort of brought like this hybrid of backgrounds where uh, the CEO is the former head of um, clinical development for Novartis for a very long time. And the CTO kind of came from like a traditional tech background. And in working with those two seasoned, experienced executives for three years, I, I saw, I learned a couple of things. First, um, how to get disparate backgrounds to function uh, in the life sciences. Uh, I think secondly, just how to will a startup into existence. Um, and, and then uh, spent a lot of time in business development and so learned how to think through um, creative partnership, um, you know, structures with pharma companies and, and licensing and so on. And, and finally fundraising, right? Um, and so those were some really formative experiences for me. And, um, following that, I joined Bain and Company uh, here in the Boston office, uh, which is Bain's global he headquarters. So um, learned a lot about management consultant, strategy consultant, spent my whole time there in the healthcare practice, uh, doing all sorts of projects in strategy, M&A, operational um, efficiency and, and things like that. I also did quite a bit of work in digital. You know, at the time, uh, this was 2015, there about, you know, a lot of companies in the healthcare sector, whether it be pharma, provider, et cetera, were coming to Bain and, and asking us to help them think through sort of like the digitization strategy. You know, today I'm guessing it would be the generative AI strategy, but at the time it was much broader. And so I enjoyed sort of um, a lot of those projects and um, at a point decided that it was time for me to, you know, go try to will another startup into existence. Uh, this time around, one that, um, one for which I thought I had a more unique founder um, market fit in terms of my interest in technology and the collision of technology and life sciences, but wanting to apply that more upstream uh, of the drug discovery of the drug discovery and development process. So I had worked in the clinical trial space. I had wanted I'd, I'd worked in bringing technology to that space, uh, which is a bit more downstream. And this time around, I decided, why don't I start a company? that'd be upstream of clinical trials, right? That would focus more on the earlier stages, which spoke more to my background, right? As a classical pharmacologist and to try to use technology um, in that setting. So my, my sort of entry into AI-driven drug discovery um, really came from like a problem uh, thesis perspective. It wasn't that I, you know, 
discovered some machine learning architecture and and went in search of like some place to apply it. Um, that that is the founding story for quite a few people in this space, and there's nothing wrong with that story. That just isn't my story. I think I come more from the perspective of okay, I'm spending all this time, you know, in the basement at Tufts, you know working on like hundreds of my hundreds of mice, rats and all of that and testing all these drugs in a very artisanal way. There's gotta be a quicker way to like to do this, you know, there's gotta be a more um, you know, predictive way to figure out whether, you know, the series of molecules that we're working on are even worth sacrificing all these animals for, right? So um that really was where I was coming at it from. Like, is there anything out there that could you know, help us uh, with this problem. And so that's that's how 1910 Genetics was born uh, in the summer of 2018. So you went from Bain to founding the company and was it in stealth mode for a couple of years before kind of like the public announcement? Yeah, absolutely. So I founded the company in uh, late 2018, thereabout, and we didn't actually launch out of stealth until March of 21. So we had done a seed round, which we didn't announce. We had gone through Y Combinator. So I moved out to Palo Alto, Mountain View, spent uh, a couple months there going through YC, which was uh, a true accelerant uh, for me as a first time founder, first time CEO. Um, really, uh, YC provided uh, that scaffold and that sort of jumping off point for me to, uh, to go and do this in, in a way that the ecosystem, frankly, here in the Boston area wouldn't have allowed me to do so. Um, so shout out to, to my YC community. Um, you know, so went through Y Combinator. Uh, we raised uh, about a little over $4 million in our seed round, uh, as you mentioned. Sam Altman let that round um, and then came mm-hmm. back and, you know, spent, you know, the, the first 18 months or so uh, building out a small team. I think we got up to like eight people. Um, moved into Lab Central, which is a premier biotech incubator here in Kendall Square. Um, and, you know, that was really where we started building the initial, you know, versions, the early prototypes of what is now um, just a small part of a pretty fully integrated drug discovery stack. So in those early stages, we built like some initial machine learning uh, AI, uh, machine learning and AI prototypes. We did some, you know, um, iterative um, developments to show that we could, you know, do small molecule hit identification, hit to lead, lead optimization, et cetera, uh, much quicker uh, than you would uh, with a traditional uh, medicinal chemistry process. So everything at pretty small scale, though. So we didn't have our own labs, you know, we're renting to small benches at Lab Central, but it was enough to to sort of like prove out uh, an MVP of the idea. And then Microsoft Venture Fund uh, came calling uh, to preempt our Series A. A friend of mine, Koki Harasaki, had left Andreessen to go join Microsoft Venture Fund. I had known Koki for almost a decade uh, by the time he reached out. Um, and he had joined Microsoft's Venture Fund to sort of pioneer their computational drug discovery investment thesis. Um, and that was how um, they ended up leading our Series A, brought on Playground Global, closed that round in March of 21, and then came out of stealth and announced a combination of the seed and Series A. Um, and since then, really just focused on, um, you know, first of all, I talked about having built prototype machine learning models at Seed. Um, we, we had to scale that, right? We had to go from a couple of different prototype models here and there to really building a fully integrated top to bottom drug discovery stack. When I talk about a stack, I'm talking about everything from the bottom layer of the laboratory automation, right? The compute that feeds that, the proprietary data sets that we had to create over time, um, the models experimenting with different machine learning and AI model architectures, um, experimenting with different phenotypes of models. So some, what we call it 1910 unimodal data, unimodal uh, models, which are models that are fed by a single data type versus multimodal uh, models that are sort of uh, fed uh, with um, hybrid data sets. So we really had to like, you know, think through and develop, you know, different variant ML architecture and just the overall ML strategy for the company, especially as we, you know, expanded from just focusing on small molecules to now also adding on large molecules and eventually building out a truly modality agnostic, uh, full full stack um, uh, uh, platform. I mean, so a lot of our use of funds for the Series A over the last two years have really been about building out that full stack um, 
uh, a drug discovery platform. And I think in addition to that, we've also um, you know, advanced uh, molecules in our pipeline, both internally and uh, with, uh, in collaboration with uh, a couple of pharma companies. Um, and, and then we, we've, we've started to um, you know, think very creatively about our go-to-market strategy and commercialization and like, how do we get this technology into the hands of as many people as possible all over the world? Like, that's the dream, like to truly make a dent in this process. I don't imagine that it would be one company who's developed one awesome technology and would use it exclusively, right? If you really want to make an impact, you've got to try to get the technology into the hands of as many people as possible. And I think that's where um, we're really trying to be creative about how we how we do that through partnerships. Mm. Can you talk a bit about the the role of Azure Quantum Elements and what that plays in the, the technology stack? Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, so, in June of this year, uh, June of 23, uh, Microsoft announced um, the launch of Azure Quantum Elements um, as a platform that combines AI and high-performance computing to accelerate scientific discovery, specifically molecular simulations. Um, they had been building this unique platform for a number of years with a focus on the chemistry and material sciences industry. Um, and they had, um, they, 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 they announced as part of that announcement uh, in June, uh, quite a few, actually a handful of large corporations in the chemistry and material sciences space. So think BASF, you know, SCGC, uh, Johnson, Matthey, and, and these, uh, you know, really big companies um, were already showing significant uh, acceleration um, in sort of the scale and the speed and the productivity of, of, of sort of the uh, the molecular simulations that they were running. And, and I don't know how much you knew about the chemistry and material sciences space, but you know, simulations at the heart of how uh, these materials are created. So think about, you know, materials for paints and all of these different things and even energy batteries and all of that stuff. So um, they, they, so Microsoft was building Azure Quantum Elements as a prelude to its um, quantum supercomputer. Uh, the idea would be that, you know, uh, you start to see gains with uh, Azure Quantum Elements um, and then you eventually transition when the quantum supercomputer is here, that transition is uh, seamless because uh, a lot of the the parallelization, a lot of the way you have to work on quantum elements is preparing you for a future where quantum computing would be the a fundamental breakthrough that changes things. And so Microsoft did an announcement in, in, in June um, and 1910 sort of like, uh, you know, slipped in there as the, the only biotech um, drug discovery uh, launch customer. And we were essentially, what that announcement was, was getting at was that we were being uh, offered uh, in private preview an opportunity to um, test out uh, the platform in like very small instances for like very point solutions um, as part of our platform. And so what I can say is it's been a, it's been a great experience, but more to come on this. Um, mm. Maybe when you talk to me in another couple of months, I think we should have a follow-up on that. <laughs> well, it seems like that's a theme that you've had the, the good fortune to kind of be ahead of the curve in terms of machine learning and like given your the experience at Transparency Life Sciences, which like I didn't hear much about kind of digital and clinical trials back then, like 2013, 14, 15 timeframe. And then you have this ability as well to tap into kind of like software that's new from Microsoft as well, Microsoft Azure. And then I think it's also rare. I think I've talked to one company that had the Y Combinator kind of backing, but that's pretty rare in biotech to have that as well. So it seems like you've been fortunate to have several different kind of exposures that have set the stage for a novel approach. Can, can you say more about how the company's kind of AI or ML strategy is different from kind of the more, the more mainstream approaches for using ML and drug discovery and development? What do you mean by ML strategy? Like, I feel like that's a big topic. It is a big topic. So I think I hear a lot about ML being used for like clinical trials, like one, and then also for like kind of like hit and lead kind of like early stage. Mm -hmm. So like kind of like early on and then kind of like later on when the, the drugs going to phase one, phase two, kind of like clinical. Um, and I've heard a little bit about quantum, 
am quantum inspired computing, but I've not really kind of like talked to many companies that are doing like this molecular modeling using um, software like you're doing. So I think I'm just trying to get a sense of kind of for how, how your approach kind of stands out in the marketplace and like what led to kind of like that white combinator and like Sam Altman kind of attention, Microsoft venture fund attention, like M12 and playground yeah. global as well. So it's kind of a, a big question as you pointed out, but um, <laughs> just try, trying to get a sense of kind of like, what is it about the company that really like makes it stand yeah. out? Cause it's, it does seem like I'm, I'm picking up on, there is a, a unique angle there and part of, yeah, I, I think I'll pause and just like you. Um, <laughs> well, um, well thank, you. thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, I certainly couldn't um, speak on behalf of our investors. You're probably going to have to ask them why they invested, but I could I could venture a guess. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of what what differentiates us, I think I think it's a couple of things. I think first, um, you know, I, I alluded to the fact that I didn't start the company with a shiny ML tool in search of a problem. From 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 the get go, we've been pretty clear eyed about being a biotechnology company. And what that means is really measuring ourselves by, you know, just drugs and like drug candidates. And like, that's, that's the bar. That's the, that's the metric that we use internally at 1910. And so I think that North star for us, that, that North star has been um, a pretty big influence on strategy, right? Uh, it's, it's influenced the way we've built the team, um, which is, you know, just, equal parts, computational folks, biology folks, seasoned drug discovery executives who have actually put drugs in the clinic and brought drugs to market, mm -hmm. as well as uh, very energetic, um, you know, uh, AI machine learning scientists and so on. So I think in the beginning, I think there were a lot of uh, AI drug discovery companies who just, you were just super excited about like, oh, I developed like this image, you know, convolutional neural network uh, as part of my PhD, and now I'm going to go use it. And I think what you saw with a lot of those companies was just a lack of clarity uh, on the actual drug discovery strategy. But we, we started from the problem and worked our way to the technology that was best suited to address that problem. So I think that comes through in spades when you think about the way we talk about 1910. I'd say the second piece is the, the tech stack itself, right? I described a really fully integrated top to bottom stack, uh, drug discovery tech stack, um, and one that is modality agnostic, right? To the best of my knowledge, we are the only company that is um, able to leverage a single tech stack to design both small molecules, like your traditional pills, as well as large molecules, whether they be peptides or antibodies. That's a very unique differentiated value proposition, right? Uh, and you've mentioned our partnership with um, uh, collaboration that we announced with Microsoft in, 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 in June. Um, and all I'd say to you on that is there's more to come. And I think in the coming mm -hmm. months, you'd, you'd start to see how all the different pieces connect for us and, and where we're going. Well, thanks, Jen. I look forward to keeping up on the company and kind of following the evolution as time goes on. It's cool hearing about this kind of topic about the next frontier for AI enabled biotechs is exploiting massive biological data sets. We talked about that before the interview, but now we have like a clear idea of how 1910 genetics is approaching that. I really enjoyed this episode, Brian. It was really specific about how important data is when it comes to integrating artificial intelligence into the life sciences. I'm very much looking forward to our next episode of AI Meets Live Sci, where we're going to be interviewing Ben Newton, who is the Chief Digital Officer and General Manager of Oncology for GE Healthcare. One cool factoid about GE Healthcare is that they have the most 510k clearances for AI, AI-enabled applications of any company. Yeah, I'm so excited to dig into that. So if the audience is interested in digging into that as well, please make sure to subscribe to Device Talks on YouTube. Subscribe to AI Meets LifeSci on all of the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, so you don't miss the episode with Ben Newton of GE Healthcare. Huge thank you once again to our sponsors, SmartTrack Business Intelligence and Catalyze Healthcare. We could not create this season without your support, and we're looking forward to hearing from you as the season goes on. And 
Thank you again to our audience for listening to AI Meets Life Sci. I'm Kayleen Brown, I'm the Managing Editor for Device Talks. And I'm Brian Bunce, Pharma and Biotech Editor at Drug Discovery and Development. So please connect with us on LinkedIn, on X. You can email us, uh, but we would love to hear from you. And I know that Brian and I are always talking about how can we possibly improve the content so that you're getting the information you're looking for. So do let us know, are these episodes too long, just long enough? Do you want to hear more? Do you want to hear less? What do you want to hear of? We're here to answer the questions you have and to get the right people in front of you so you can hear from those you're the most interested in. So once again, thank you very much for joining us on AI Meets Life Sci, and we'll see you in three weeks with GE Healthcare.